Welcome to 5 at 8. I'm Mark Overman, and this morning I'm joined by Linda Carlisle. It's Monday, October 23rd, 2023. In this episode, we'll talk about Israel's escalating air raids in Gaza, the European Central Bank's move towards launching a digital euro, Hyundai's collaboration with Saudi Arabia to build a car plant, the challenges in fulfilling President Biden's promise to send weapons to Ukraine and Israel, and the severe water shortage in the village of Pozoblanco, Spain. Story number one. Israel's overnight air raids in Gaza have resulted in the deaths of at least 55 people and the destruction of 30 homes, as reported by Al Jazeera. This marks an escalation in Israel's air campaign ahead of an anticipated ground invasion. The casualties add to the more than 4,300 Palestinians, mostly civilians, who have been killed in Israel's bombing campaign on Gaza. Israel has ordered 1.1 million Palestinians to evacuate southwards as it prepares for a ground incursion. However, even the southern part of Gaza has not been spared from air attacks. Israel's military has warned Palestinians to move to the south, stating that staying in the north could identify them as sympathizers with a terrorist organization. The expected ground offensive has raised concerns about further civilian deaths due to the limited safe havens in the densely populated enclave. Why are we seeing such a rise in civilian casualties in these conflicts, Linda? It's heartbreaking to see the destruction and displacement happening in Gaza. It is, Mark. And it's a complex issue. Traditionally, military conflicts have had front lines where the fighting is concentrated. But in modern warfare, especially in urban environments like Gaza, distinguishing between combatants and civilians can be incredibly difficult. The housing and infrastructure damage we're seeing is also a result of this urban warfare. Buildings, roads, water, and electricity systems, they're all potential targets. But there's got to be some kind of rules or guidelines in place to protect civilians, right? I mean, it's not like anything goes in times of war. Absolutely. International Humanitarian Law, or IHL, sets out rules to protect civilians and limit the means and methods of warfare. And one of its key principles is the distinction between civilians and combatants. However, enforcement can be challenging. Violations often go unpunished. And in some cases, the line between combatant and civilian is intentionally blurred. And what about the international community? The UN, for instance, they've got to be doing something to help out, right? Well, yes, the United Nations and other international organizations play a crucial role in providing relief and advocating for peace. But their influence on conflict resolution can be limited, particularly when dealing with deeply entrenched political conflicts. It's a difficult situation, Mark. And sadly, as we're seeing in Gaza, it's often the civilians who suffer the most. It's just... It's just really tough to wrap my head around, you know? The idea that in this day and age we're still seeing such large-scale suffering. I mean, isn't there anything more that can be done? It's a fair question, Mark, but it's also a complex one. Addressing these issues requires a multifaceted approach. There's the immediate humanitarian response, of course. But there's also the longer-term work of diplomacy and conflict resolution, as well as the need to hold violators of international law accountable. It's a long, challenging process, but it's a necessary one if we're to prevent such tragedies in the future. Story number two. The European Central Bank, ECB, has taken a significant step towards launching a digital euro, becoming the first major Western central bank to do so, as reported by Reuters. 
The move follows the introduction of central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, in a few countries, and the exploration of digital cash by 130 countries. Proponents argue that CBDCs will modernize payments and provide an alternative to physical cash. However, there are concerns about privacy, cybersecurity, and the potential impact on commercial banks and developing countries. The ECB's decision could set a global blueprint for CBDCs, and its success in addressing these concerns will be influential. Other countries, such as China and India, are also testing CBDCs, but adoption rates have been low in some cases. The Bahamas, which launched the world's first digital currency in 2020, has seen a decline in personal transactions using its digital currency. The International Monetary Fund, IMF, is assisting many countries with CBDC plans and will publish a guide on the topic. The choices made by the ECB and India, along with the IMF's efforts, could shape a global standard for CBDCs. The key question is how CBDCs will improve the financial system. Would you believe it, Linda? The European Central Bank is inching closer to launching a digital euro. This could be a game-changer, really. It's like we're witnessing the next evolution of money. But it's not just about the evolution, it's also about resilience. The ECB's move is essentially a way to future-proof the currency, as Fabio Panetta puts it. But it's not all smooth sailing. Many are still questioning the need for CBDCs. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? But then again, technology is advancing at such a rapid rate, and we can't afford to be left in the dust. The concern about snooping, though, now that's a biggie. Privacy issues and cybersecurity, those are some serious hurdles to clear. Absolutely. And there's also the impact on commercial banking to consider. If customers start moving their money into central bank accounts, it could potentially destabilize existing structures. But then again, if done right, CBDCs could modernize payments and provide a viable alternative to physical cash, which seems to be on its way out. Right, right. And let's not forget about the developing countries. An easily accessible digital dollar or euro could wreak havoc on their systems. It's like opening Pandora's box, you know? But the fact that countries like China and India are already piloting CBCs, it shows that there's momentum in this direction. Indeed, but the experience of Nigeria also serves as a cautionary tale. The adoption of their Enaira has been described as disappointingly low, which indicates that public acceptance and awareness are crucial factors for the successful implementation of CBCs. True, true. Education and understanding are key. It's like trying to introduce a new gadget without first explaining what it does or how to use it. But hey, if the ECB can address the privacy and security issues and make the digital euro usable offline, they might just set a global standard. It's like the VHS of the financial world, eh? That's a good analogy, Mark. It's a transformative period for the global financial system. And it will be interesting to see how the landscape evolves with the advent of CBDCs. But as Josh Lipsky from the Atlantic Council points out, the ultimate test is whether these digital currencies can truly improve the financial system. Story number three. Hyundai Motor Group will collaborate with Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, the Public Investment Fund, PF, to build a car plant in Saudi Arabia, as reported by Reuters. The plant, the first South Korean automobile factory in the Middle East, will have the capacity to produce 50,000 electric and gas-powered cars annually. This move aligns with Saudi Arabia's goal of diversifying its economy away from oil and increasing its car manufacturing output to over 300,000 vehicles per year by 2030. 
While no specific details on the plant's location or car models were provided, the first cars are expected to be produced in 2026. During South Korea's President Yoon Suk-yeol's visit to Saudi Arabia, various agreements were signed, including those related to strategic partnerships and the development of green hydrogen, as stated by Reuters. It's about time we see another big player entering the Middle Eastern market, right? South Korea's Hyundai Motor Group partnering with Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. It's a power move on both sides. Saudi Arabia is making strides to diversify their economy away from oil, and Hyundai, well, they are seizing the opportunity to expand their influence in the Middle East. The move is strategic for both parties. Hyundai gets a new manufacturing hub and Saudi Arabia inches closer to their Vision 2030 goals. However, it's more than just business expansion. This partnership, in a broader sense, marks a significant shift towards sustainable economic models away from a heavy reliance on fossil fuels. It's a win-win, really. And it's not just about diversifying the economy. It's also about creating jobs, boosting the manufacturing sector, and of course making strides in environmental conservation efforts. I mean, we're talking about 50,000 electric and gas-powered cars annually, right? That's huge. Yes, it's indeed a significant step. But I think it's important to not overlook the fact that they're also planning to develop green hydrogen. This is a clear indication that Saudi Arabia is not only looking to diversify its economy, but also to be at the forefront of clean energy solutions. I couldn't agree more. And this isn't an isolated case, is it? We're seeing this trend across the globe. Oil-rich nations are realizing that they can't solely rely on oil revenues anymore, and they're turning to technology, manufacturing, and other sectors to keep their economies afloat. It's a fascinating shift, don't you think? It's a testament to how global economic dynamics are rapidly changing, with a greater emphasis on sustainability and collaboration. This Hyundai-Saudi Arabia partnership is a clear example of how international cooperation can accelerate these transitions. It's a promising development and I'm eager to see how it shapes the global economic and environmental landscape in the coming years. Story number four. In a report from the New York Times, President Biden's promise to send more weapons to Ukraine and Israel to show equal support for both countries in their respective conflicts has hit a snag. Tens of thousands of artillery shells promised to Ukraine will be diverted to Israel due to limited global stockpiles and manufacturers struggling to keep up with demand. While Ukraine and Israel are fighting different kinds of wars and have different needs, they both require certain weapons systems, such as artillery ammunition, smart bombs, and stinger missiles. With the ongoing conflicts and the potential for extended durations, there may be trade-offs in supplying both countries with the necessary weapons. Is it just me, Linda? Or does it seem like the U.S. is in a real pickle here? I mean, trying to arm both Ukraine and Israel at the same time. It's like trying to juggle with one hand tied behind your back. Well, Mark, it's certainly a complex situation. Both Ukraine and Israel are confronted with different types of conflicts, and their needs for military aid are diverse. The U.S. is indeed in a challenging position, trying to allocate resources between two allies while maintaining its own strategic interests. Right, right. And that bit about the 155mm artillery shells being diverted from Ukraine to Israel. I mean, it's like robbing Peter to pay Paul, isn't it? In a sense, yes. But it's important to remember that these are strategic decisions made based on a multitude of factors. It's not just about the quantity of resources, but also about the specific capabilities and needs of each ally. 
For instance, Ukraine might be involved in a war of attrition where heavy artillery is crucial, whereas Israel's urban warfare might require precision-guided shells. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But you know, it must be tough for those guys in Ukraine hearing that some of their promised artillery is now heading to Israel. It's like, hey, we thought those were ours. Yes, it could certainly be perceived that way. But we must also keep in mind the broader geopolitical context. The U.S. is trying to balance its commitments to multiple allies, and sometimes that might mean making tough decisions that don't necessarily please everyone. Well, it's a tough gig, ain't it? At the end of the day, though, I guess it's about doing what's best for the most people, right? It's about making decisions based on the strategic interests of the U.S., the needs of its allies, and ultimately, the goal of maintaining peace and stability in the world. Story number five. Pozo Blanco, a village in southern Spain, is facing a severe water shortage due to a long-running drought caused by high temperatures and reduced rainfall, as reported by the New York Times. The Sierra Boyera Reservoir, which supplies the area, has completely dried up, leading to the need for fresh water deliveries since April. However, attempts to alleviate the crisis by channeling water from a backup reservoir, La Calada, backfired as the water was found to be contaminated. The contaminated water is still being used by many residents for household chores and bathing, raising concerns about potential health risks. The drought has also affected the economic development of the region, particularly the cattle farming industry, leading to greater water consumption. If precipitation levels remain low, Andalusia, the southernmost region of Spain, could lose 7% of its gross domestic product. The situation has caused despair among residents, with livestock farmers having to sell their animals and bakery owners struggling to manage the water shortage. Many residents blame politicians for not taking action sooner, and plans to connect the province to a strategic reserve of drinking water are being discussed. However, without rain, the situation remains uncertain. Can you believe this, Linda? It's alarming to see such a dire situation unfolding in Pozo Blanco, Spain. Water scarcity has reached a point where the locals have to rely on tanker trucks to get drinkable water. It's a real eye-opener to the impacts of climate change. This isn't a problem that's just going to disappear on its own. It's going to need some serious intervention. It's heartbreaking to see how these communities are struggling. The villagers can't even rely on their tap water to wash dishes. And then there's the contamination issue with the backup reservoir La Colada. It's not just about scarcity, but also about quality. Climate change and economic development are intertwined in such complex ways, and they're both exerting pressure on these already strained water resources. The economic development of the province is linked to greater water consumption. The farming industry is a significant part of their local economy, and it's severely impacted. Just like Rafael Munoz, the livestock farmer who had to sell his Iberian pigs because of the drought, this is a serious blow to the local economy and people's livelihoods. And it's not just the immediate economic impact. Maria Jose Polo, the hydraulic engineering professor from the University of Cordoba, mentioned that if rainfall levels remain low this winter, Andalusia could lose 7% of its GDP. That's a staggering figure. It's clear that the consequences of these environmental issues extend far beyond the immediate. They can have long-term effects on a region's economic stability. I agree. And it's not just about Pozo Blanco or Spain. This is a global issue. As global warming intensifies, we're going to see more of these problems cropping up in different parts of the world. It's a wake-up call for all of us. We need to seriously rethink how we manage our resources and plan for the future. And the role of governments in this can't be overstated.
They need to step up and take action. And this isn't just about governments alone. It's a collective effort. Individuals, businesses, and communities all have a role to play in mitigating these effects. From adopting sustainable practices to advocating for change, every action counts. This situation in Pozo Blanco underscores just how urgent this issue is. If we don't act now, we risk more communities facing similar struggles in the future. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.